This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it toward its true principles of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, August 28, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. Henry Martin drops by again today to talk with us about his campaign for the 6th Congressional District of Missouri. We initially talked with Henry in November of last year and then again in early May of this year, so we'll catch up on his campaign and see how things are going. But first, a message from the League of Women Voters. You know, I found a great resource online from the League of Women Voters. It's called Vote411.org. Check it out. They have a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues that you will see on your ballot this November. Again, that address is vote411.org. And speaking of voting, do you sometimes feel that your vote doesn't count? Because with all the money dumped on some candidates, it's difficult for the candidates without a lot of money to get noticed. And you know how it goes. Those with the money get the attention. It's an unfortunate fact of politics in this country that money injects corruption into our government. Now, if you're as concerned about it as I am, then join Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. Join Move to Amend and help create a movement toward a true democracy that serves all the people, not just the rich ones. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. So today we're talking with Henry Martin, Democratic Congressional Candidate for the 6th District in Missouri. The 6th District covers all the northern portion of Missouri, stretching east to west. Most of this district is rural, truly the American Midwestern heartland. Henry is a veteran of the United States Army. He fought as part of the Desert Shield and Desert Storm operations. After returning from combat duty, he enlisted in the Missouri National Guard and worked directly with Missourians impacted by the flood of 93. And that experience taught him about the importance of infrastructure and how it is an integral part of stability and prosperity for everyone. After leaving the Guard, he taught high school math and coached school sports. Henry's not a newcomer to politics. Back in 2020, he ran in the Democratic primary for the 6th Congressional District but lost out to Dr. Gina Ross. But going back to 2018, he actually won the Democratic primary for the 6th District, but lost out on the general election to the Republican incumbent. So this time around, 2022, he won the Democratic primary again, so he'll run against the Republican incumbent again. And uh, that person, the Republican incumbent, has held that post since the election of 2000. So Henry, thanks for joining us again at Democracy on the Move, and welcome back. Hey, thank you very much, Dan, for having me on. I appreciate the time. Good. Well, you know, the last time you and I talked, which was early May, I believe, you were in a race to win the Democratic primary, and here you are. You won the primary, so now it's off to the general election. Uh, what's your sense about the general election? Is the 6th District now ready for a change? Well, um, our, our data shows that it is. Uh, we, are, we are running our third poll on the district. Uh, to make sure that we are we are aware of everything that uh, people in the sixth district are 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 concerned about, uh, we are also running it to make sure uh, that our numbers are showing exactly what they've been showing, and that's that uh, this this district is ripe for a change. Um, mm-hmm. We we have noticed that uh, my opponent uh, his his favorability rating is down, uh, and uh, the January sixth commission. And their report, I believe, is is beginning to uh, break some chinks in in the armor. Mm-hmm. Um, the the catch twenty two here in the district is that, uh, well, there's no benefit for him uh, to openly debate uh, or discuss me in any way, shape, form, or fashion because the district is gerrymandered so that he doesn't really have to campaign, yeah. and that's a shame. Yeah, that is. I've noticed that a lot with the Republicans. The Democrats want to debate, but the Republicans are are saying, nope, you know, because, uh, well, at least here in Missouri, anyways, it's probably different in mm-hmm. other states. 
but in Missouri here, they're, um, yeah, I think you're right. A lot of it is so gerrymandered that um, they don't see the need. It's, um, it's, it's a, they only have something to lose if they debate, so they're not going to debate. That's right. The problem is that they're not, they don't really have any policy ideas for governing this nation. The only thing they, they want to fight the culture wars um, and they want, they want to deregulate uh, and cut taxes. Well, you can't be fiscally responsible and cut taxes to the bone to the point where you're not getting anything done mm -hmm. to you're not you're not getting services to people that are required. But the but here's the, the kicker and the people that need the services the most, they're the people that aren't going to be able to write uh, $2,000 checks to a campaign to help a campaign win. Right. Uh, so when, when they're the ones who, who get cut off from services, you know, and it's the irony is that some people even vote against their better interests. Yeah. Well, I think one thing observation I've had in talking to several other people, um, most recently was Debbie Lavender about this, that people will vote on issues first. And so, you know, the, the Republican party has, I think very um, craftily, if that's a word, figured out that they can create some issues. You know, go down the line, right? You can talk about abortion or CRT or you know, flag burning or anything like that. And these are the issues that get people really uh, mm -hmm. mobilized and inflamed, you know, enraged to engage sort of thing. And then, yeah, they, they, you know, the secondary to them, because these issues are so important, the secondary thing is their own, their own self-interest which is often against what they're voting for. And the question that, that is always asked, if, if these are these issues important for governance, mm -hmm. are these issues important in how we allocate funding for different services that the government provides? Are these, are these issues important in the grand scheme of every person? A lot of these things are just individual issues that people feel strongly about because they have uh, a, a dog of their own that they feel is in the fight or they have a, uh, an emotional response to certain mm -hmm. uh, words. And um, I would encourage every voter uh, to not uh, vote with your anger and your frustration, but vote with your head. Let's start looking at what's, what's really being offered by a candidate. Let's start looking what's being offered by, by the, each platform. Uh, well, uh, let's just look at the successes President Biden has had recently. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I do know that uh, they were screaming that uh, he's responsible for gas prices going up. Well, I don't hear them saying, oh, congratulations, Joe Biden. Uh, Joe Biden, gas prices are coming down because of the things that you've done. You've stayed the course. You've done these things. We've gotten the supply chains rebuilt. So gas prices are coming down along with food prices coming down, you know, and so on and so on and so on. They're not singing those prices. Oh, by the way, President Biden, you managed to get action on climate change. Right. You managed to get action on uh, um, infrastructure, on relieving infrastructure, relieving yeah. student debt and so on and so on. So you got he got all these victories. But no one, but they don't, they don't seem to want to say anything about those victories. They still want to say he's causing inflation. Yeah. And uh, we, we, in, in, in a global inflation, inflationary situation, I think uh, there's more to it than the president. Um, so I, I get it. it. It is the natural criticism of the party out of power to criticize the party in power. But I would challenge them uh, to go at him on the, on the real issues, and that's policy, public policy, that makes a difference in the lives of the people that we're supposed to be serving. Yeah. And that's where Republicans fall short. They don't serve the general public. Primarily, they, it seems to be that the wealthy just get wealthier, and uh, everybody else is fighting for the table scraps. It, it's, it's like, look, they, they do a dog and pony show. On one hand, they've got the shiny object, and in the other hand, They've got what they're really doing, and that's what we seem to be chasing is what they're really doing. Yeah. Um, so I, I do understand that it's it's a wonderful thing to be able to distract people, but uh, it's it's also very very unfortunate that this is 
this is the way they choose to um, do their politics. Yeah. They're not, there's not, there's not a governing agenda. Yeah. You know, it, 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 talking about the economy and taxes, just one observation I had was um, that, that the, it's been emphasized so many times over and over again that any sort of new taxes is only going to impact people making 400000 or more. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, th- I think like, like you, I, I would expect, you know, the, the party that's not empowered to try to twist that any way they could. But I thought one of the, mm-hmm. one of the pretzels that it got twisted into was that, no, it's a tax on everyone. And I think this mm-hmm. is actually Mike Pompeo that put, uh, put out an article about this. And he's, his, his way of, of expressing that it was a tax for everyone is that, well, if you raise taxes on corporations and the rich people, uh, they're just going to raise the prices of everything. So everybody indirectly is going to pay more taxes. Mm-hmm. You know, and my, my uh, comeback to that was, well, you know, when they cut their taxes in 2017, how much did that cut prices for people? And the answer to that is, of course, go. zero. There you, you know? go. Right. Because so prices, prices still continue to go up. Yeah. Even yeah. before, even before, before the real inflation hit. Yeah. Um, so in to, to a lot of them, I challenge uh simply this when they say that they pass on the tax to the consumer it is very difficult to pass on an income tax because income taxes are variable so um you made you made a hundred dollars on uh uh something that you sold this you know if you're a business you made a hundred dollars on a unit that you sold Mm -hmm. and you pay uh, now it's a minimum of a 15% tax that they have to pay. Let's just say they have to pay that 15% minimum, which is another victory for the Biden administration, by the way, mm-hmm. forcing corporations to pay a minimum of 15%. So there will be no more of these tax refunds for tax refunds and, uh, and corporations paying $0 in taxes. Mm-hmm. So that means they pay $15 on how much money they made. Well, they decide they're going to try and pass that on to the consumer and so they up they up the price uh, that fifteen dollars to make back that fifteen dollars they paid. Well, next year they made more money because they increased the price instead of making fifteen dollars. Let's just say they made twenty five dollars next year. And so you mm-hmm. get where we're going with this. Eventually, they're going to price the the item out of the market. Right. Now that may that may take time or. They're going to price it into a place where it's it's going to end up just sitting on the shelf. So that that is a that is a falsehood, and it's and people and I and I say this and I and I will say this and I'll stand by this. Most people vote Republican because they don't understand math. Mm-hmm. Simply put, uh, because if you understand math, you understand that you cannot cut your way to prosperity. But I under I also understand we can't tax our way to prosperity. Yeah. The tax burden needs to be spread out in such a way that people feel it the least. People feel it as minimally as possible so that we can maximize the product the productivity of our public service jobs. Yeah. Because a lot of people in public service jobs, they want to do a good job for the people. But the problem is if they don't have the resources to do a good job, they get stuck. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's let's take let's take for example, let's let's use teachers as an example. Teachers want to do good work. School districts want to do good work. But we keep having these we keep having school systems underfunded year after year after year because you keep cutting taxes and and, and you know, I, I don't like to talk to, to, you know, I could talk specifically to the state state problem here in Missouri. When you cut taxes in Missouri, Missouri has a unique situation in the Hancock Amendment that prevents the Missouri legislature from raising taxes back to the original rate to recover those losses, mm-hmm. it, as it were. Uh, without in the Hancock Amendment, you have to you have to t- take it to a vote of the people. I have no problem with taking tax increases above a certain threshold uh, back to the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and when you're when you're just restoring a cut that was made that was probably unnecessary at the time it was made, I don't think that uh, the legislature should have to go back to the people. 
Um, yes, and that that gives the legislature a little bit more flexibility in the yeah. in the in the lean years where they need to raise taxes on corporations and wealthy people, they can. And in the strong years, they can reduce those taxes accordingly. And that's what our ta our tax system should be an active situation, yeah. not a situation yeah. where we're looking at. Let's have these tax cuts be permanent. No, we need, it's just like if you or I need a little bit of extra money, you know, we might go out and take an extra job or an extra gig to do, to bring in a couple extra dollars here and there, just because we needed it in that time frame, or we learned to save money by doing things a little bit different. You know, it, it's no different than you and I at home. Mm -hmm. uh, and the average family does, does exactly what I'm saying all the time. Mm -hmm. People pick up extra jobs to pick up some extra money to do something specific. Um, mm -hmm. So um, our government should operate in the same same way. Well, let me ask you a question, because uh, this has been coming up recently. And um, are we in a recession? Because, you know, the rule of thumb uh, from <laughs> from the National Bureau of Economic Research is mm -hmm. that we have to have two consecutive quarters of reduction in GDP. Mm -hmm. However, it also includes things like uh, uh, a rising unemployment and the lowering of interest rates. Well, we're just mm -hmm. totally bonkers right now because that's not happening. So, <laughs> you know, are, so are we really in a in a recession at this point, in your opinion? Well, you know what? Um, and not being a not being a professional economist, I have I cannot give a, a, a clear answer. But one, but by the economic by the indicators. All of the indicators are not there to indicate that we are in a recession. Mm -hmm. The only one that's there that indicates that we're in a recession is the is the two consecutive quarters of uh, contraction of GDP. Right. Uh, every every other indicator says that we are not in a recession. Mm -hmm. Now, if I say that we are not in a recession and we actually are, um, then I look foolish. So. I cannot say uh, yay or nay, mm -hmm. but what I can say is that, and I think this is something that we all have to acknowledge, we are coming out of a global pandemic. Yeah. And as such, there are we are in, in uncharted territory uh, for a century. You know, they, they did it in the 1920s and shortly after the flu pandemic, uh, they had the stock market crash in 1929. So. Yeah. You know, um, I mean, I say shortly after, and it was about nine nine years later, right. almost ten years later. Uh, so, well, that was actually due you know, to, I think, uh, over speculation mm -hmm. at the time too, which which yeah, has yeah. happened many times since then as well. Yeah. Yes, yes. So, uh, and I'm just saying that in the world went into a worldwide depression. Yeah. So um, there there is some there is pain for everybody around the world. This is not just a uh, an American unique. Uh, situation. So, mm -hmm. um, one can say that we that once once our supply chain gets back in order, and once supply levels are back to uh, what we would consider normal, you'll start to see those prices come down and GDP will go back up. Well, the um, but the thing is, we're going into an election season right now. It, it's coming mm -hmm. up in November. And yep. there is no doubt, for whatever reason, I mean, we could talk about uh, worldwide uh, uh, influences on our local economy, but when it comes to people in the 6th District, and, and, and I would speak mm -hmm. for anybody, you know, here in the Midwest, uh, anyone across the U.S., actually, all they really know is what their money is buying them and what it isn't That's buying right. them. And so mm -hmm. with this economic struggle going on, um, is it going to be a big issue in, uh, in November? Of think? course, it's going to be. Of course, it's going to be a big issue because they're going. It's it, and, and again, um, I, my uh, my opponent it brings it brings it up all the time. They talk about uh, uh, this is uh, Biden's inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, this is his economy, and I I have to agree. It, the the inflation has happened under his his administration, or sorry, the substantive part of the inflation has mm -hmm. happened under his administration. Uh, the economy is is his as well. But we also have to look at the things that are positive in the economy. One, uh, wages are up. Right. Corporate profits are up. The number the unemployment is down. So all of these are great indicators of a very, very, very strong economy that that at the back end, we're going to see a great deal of prosperity for Americans. Now, we can do better. We can do better. We and we have to. 
policymakers, we we need to get in into rooms and we need to start talking and we need to get just get serious about stuff. Everything doesn't have to be a political fight and a political struggle. Mm-hmm. Doing the right thing by the American people is should not be complicated. You know, when you when you say, okay, should we have family fam, paid family medical leave? That should be an easy yes. Mm-hmm. The question mark is how do we pay for it? What are we going to do to get it? And how long is it going to be? Those should be the questions we're asking. Okay. And we have to get serious about things like that. Do we need to have some type of single payer health care? That should, the, the only discussion that we should be having at this point is what does it look like? How are we going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. Instead of, instead of trying to make excuses for why we don't pay for it, we need to just be finding ways to pay for it because it's, it's, it's the best thing for the American people and the American economy. Yeah. You know, when we're talking, when we're talking about taking care of veterans, the, the, again, the question should not be, uh, are we going to do it? The question is how much is it going to cost? Can we do it more efficiently? How are we going to, how are we going to do this? The, at, at this point we're, we're arguing over the weeds, yeah. we're arguing over weeds. We're not, we're not even being productive We're because, uh, discussions, you know, we're not, we're not having those serious discussions about how to do this better. Yeah. You know, the, the electioneering and the, the politicking needs to stop. Um, the politicking needs to stop at the, at the end of the election cycle. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, uh, well, okay. So let's, um, let's move on to something else here because this is something that's going to mm-hmm. really, I think light a flame. It has lit a flame already in, uh, in for this coming November and that is Roe v. Wade, which is now officially mm-hmm. dead. Is this going to motivate voters? I mean, I, I think the obvious answer is yes, but but there's going to be voters on both sides, right? I mean, Democratic and Republican voters, right? Well, I don't think Roe v. Wade is completely dead. There are There is legislation that has gone through the House, and they, they are trying to codify Roe v. Wade. Uh, so it's not totally dead, but, you know, the Dobbs decision has... Uh, basically giving it back to the states, as it were, mm-hmm. uh, because these are the uh, uh, const- the quote-unquote constitutional purists mm-hmm. that believe that uh, the, the states should have all the final say on this. At the end of the day, I think we what we saw in Kansas is we saw Kansas step up to the plate and say, you know what, hey, um, women are people. Women deserve the right to the autonomy over their own bodies, to their over their own health, health care. And um, I think, yes, there will be people activated at the at the polls. I do believe we're going to see a swell of the number of Democrats across the country. Uh, Particularly, we're going to see we're going to see it here in Missouri because we've also got uh, um, legalized marijuana coming on the ballot, too, here in Missouri. Yeah. So we should see a swell on both sides of the aisle because of that. Um, okay. I think when we start, and I think when we start stripping away individual rights and the rights of women, I think I think we need to really start looking at what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, because as we strip away one person's rights, you know, how long is it before they come before the next for the next person's rights? Yeah. And then the next one and the next one, and pretty soon they're coming for your rights. But you didn't say anything when they took everybody else's, and now they've taken yours. Yeah. So um, I, I I think that that autonomy, you know, um, right. at the end of the day, I, I believe there are three things that are that are true about abortion. They should be rare. They should be legal. <clears throat> and they should be, um, oh my goodness, rare, legal, and the individual's decision. Period. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm period outside of that i don't i don't understand why this is still a fight uh people people are imposing their ideological purity on other people listen if it's your religious uh feeling that someone shouldn't get an abortion then teach that to your children practice that in your life yeah you don't know someone's circumstances i you know i was at a candidate forum and I actually, you know, I actually heard heard a, a woman that was opposed to abortion, and she uh, spoke uh, uh, quite specifically uh, to the reasons people were giving for getting abortions. And uh, she said, "Well, rape and incest aren't even in the top ten. Mm-hmm. The top reasons why women get abortions are because 
they weren't ready. They said they were saying they weren't ready for a child. They couldn't afford a child or yeah. they thought they were too old to have any more children. And they're just not, they don't have the energy to have any more kids. And you know what, whether you agree or not, those are perfectly good reasons to not have a child. Yeah. There are more than three in Missouri alone. There are more than 300,000 children in the foster system. 300,000 wow. children in the foster system. And there's no reason why we, I'm sorry, not three, it's 30,000 children in the foster system. My, my campaign manager tells me not to give too many numbers. It's 30,000, more than 30,000 kids in the foster system in Missouri alone. Mm -hmm. And so when we have more than 30,000 kids in the foster system, that means there are not people to adopt. And then here's the other, and the other part of the adoption uh, scenario, it can cost upwards of $20,000 through a private organization to adopt a child. There are not enough, there are not very many people that are affluent with, uh, with those types of means to come and just adopt a child. Well, if people are not having children in the first place because of economic uh, depression, you know, they can't afford a child, then um, charging 20K to, um, adopt a child is yeah it's 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 just the same it's the same problem that's preventing children from finding homes yeah that's right so and mm. and it's that's just that's just that's just the basic cost of an adoption so the reality is abortion is health care there are part there are some things that are considered abortion that are general health care thing you know when you sit down and you talk to a woman, talk to talk to these folks at Planned Parenthood, and you talk to a doctor or two, you learn a thing or two. Mm -hmm. And these people are opposed to people having basic procedures that are actually healthcare procedures. Yeah. But because they're associated with abortion, they're out. They're now illegal here in the state of Missouri. Yeah, and it's sad. It is a sad state of affairs that. Um, well, and I'm going to use a phrase that uh, uh, Just Piper uses all the time. It is a sad state of affairs where now in Missouri, a gun has more rights than a woman. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, that's Jessica Piper, who's running for the uh, first district yes. of Missouri in the state. Yeah, I want to mm -hmm. get I want to circle back on something that you talked about earlier, though, which was mm -hmm. uh, religion being forced upon people. I mean, I, mm -hmm. I, I some people see The Handmaid's Tale, which I don't know if you're familiar with that from Margaret Atwood. Uh, mm -hmm. They see it as sort of a dark dystopian future, but some mm -hmm. other people see it as a blueprint. So, I mean, are, are you concerned at all about the possible future with um, extreme puritanical forces uh, controlling our government? Oh, oh, it is. I, I mean, well, we're, we're already looking at it. Mm -hmm. We're looking at we're looking at the minority and Republicans are actually the voting minority in the United States at this point. Mm -hmm. They but they control they control what is it, 23 or 24 states? Yeah. Uh, using their minority status and they can and they they continue to be they're able to exercise control in the Senate as the voting minority. Uh, yeah. You know, this is this is problematic when the minority can do all that it's doing you you can you can see some of those things i, I don't like to be too hyperbolic about that stuff mm -hmm. but it is concerning to think that it is possible that someone could make that case mm -hmm. yeah so about having a, a more puritanical mm -hmm. sort of a government yeah, yeah. yes yeah, and do it through from a minority position. That's right. Well, um, and, and kind of like uh, diverging off that a little bit too, I want to kind of circle back on some other thing, which we talked about uh, the uh, Roe v. Wade. I, I said it was it was dead. I think it is dead in the sense that there it is no longer a U.S. constitutional guaranteed right, and pushing it down to the states, in my opinion, kills it because uh, mm. it, it, it human rights shouldn't be a state issue. It shouldn't be a country issue. But nevertheless, right. uh, setting that aside for the moment, uh, Re Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, she had said that if Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett, these are the, the Supreme Court justices, if they lied about their intentions on Roe under oath to win confirmation, that she says lawmakers should seriously, seriously in quotes, seriously consider impeaching them. 
What are your What is your feeling about that? Well, there one there's there's very little political will to do anything uh, uh, bold or necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that consideration should be given in in such hearings because they lied under oath. Um. Mm-hmm. At what point do we hold everybody accountable? Are we only going to hold uh, you and me accountable or the guy that can't afford an attorney that doesn't have a political, a political machine behind them to defend their position? Are we the only people that get held accountable or do we hold the people with access to power accountable? That is the true test of our Constitution. Mm -hmm. That is the true test of us as Americans. Are we prepared to hold people accountable regardless of the side of the aisle that they sit on? Mm -hmm. And I mean, I mean the people who have committed crimes. Now, I know that uh, right now that there seems to be, well, they did this. So what's wrong with us doing that? Well, he did that. Well, Mm-hmm. But so and so did this, you know. Everybody's got that story. I uh, on a case by case basis. I just want to go directly to the issue at hand. I don't think people in power should be protecting their children from prosecution. I just don't think that that's a good idea. Mm-hmm. I, I the burden of proof is on the prosecution, and if a, and if a prosecutor has a good enough case, a prosecutor should be allowed to move forward with their case. Mm-hmm. Period. Right. Now, if you if you've got the resources to buy yourself justice, as in you can buy that barracuda lawyer that can go in there and make that argument argument and save your save your hide when you're on trial, then so be it. Then let you go in there and and let them uh, let them save your hide. But you've done what is supposed to be done and that's the system takes care of it. Unfortunately, we, we have, I don't know that we're going to be able to find an untainted jury for anything political in the United States. And that is a really sad state of affairs because I, I mean, if we look at the former president and we look at his actions and behavior, I mean, at the end of the day, that guy has committed so many violations of the constitution itself, not just the law that he should be barred from ever holding office again. And yet we have to run the risk of this guy becoming president again. Well, that's a, that dovetails into another question here that I want to ask. This Mm -hmm. is regarding uh, what you're, I think referring to is section three of amendment 14 uh, which uh-huh. says that no person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elected vice president, et cetera, having taken the oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or a member of legislature, et cetera, et cetera. So basically what it says that if you have uh, have taken the oath of the United States and then you have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid and comfort uh, to the enemies thereof, then you are barred from ever running for office again. So this yes. is uh, Section 3, Amendment 14. Um, what's your feeling about that? I mean, it, we're, we're dovetailing now into the January 6th, uh, yep. I believe. So and, we, and, and, this we is, it, and we need to talk about the 157 Republicans that voted to not certify the election. And well, that's for not real, necessarily and, insurrection, well, though, right? Well, but you said aid and comfort. Right. Aid was voting to not certify that vote. Well, on the other that, hand, why would they bring it to a vote mm-hmm. if somebody couldn't object to it? I mean, I understand there's other there's other people like Josh Hawley raising the fist and and uh, uh, you know giving but aid by, and comfort uh, to insurrectionists. But go ahead. What what makes it what makes it egregious is the fact that they did it after the insurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, say the vote had happened before the insurrection, that's not aid, nor is it comfort. But you are reinforcing what they were there to do by voting against the certification. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it aid, because they're trying to push forward the agenda of those people that assaulted the Capitol, Mm -hmm. period. 
And that's why those 157 Republicans should not be seated in our United States House of Representatives. At the end of the day, we owe our loyalty to the Constitution and one another. We do not owe our loyalty to a person. Mm -hmm. We don't. The United States is set up in such a way that our loyalty is to our Constitution, to the office of the president, not the president himself or herself. Yeah. Period. So I don't care who you are. I'm not going to worship a president. I'm going to openly criticize when a president is is really off the rails. I'm going to I'm going to openly criticize issues where I think the president is wrong. Those are the things. That's the metal that that makes us America. That makes us the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Not our ability to rally behind our rally behind our leader. We're not rallying behind the leader. We're rallying behind the Constitution and the office of the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. That was not a rally behind the pre- that was not a rally behind anything other than Donald Trump. Yeah. Yeah. That well, that was and we owe no no one owes allegiance to a Donald Trump. Yeah. Well, are you uh, looking at the January 6th Congressional Investigation Committee? And they've made some progress since the last time we talked about this issue in, in mm-hmm. last May. Are you happy with what you see so far from the J6 uh, congressional investigation? Well, I have to say that they have done a good job making a very strong case. I think that they've given uh, the uh, I've, they've given the DOJ uh, a framework on which to build a case against the former president. Mm-hmm. Um. But plain and simple, they've they've done a great job of building that case, demonstrating that the former president was the architect of the entire mess. He was the he was the catalyst for everything that happened that day. Um, He had he had absolutely no he was had no intention of peacefully going into that going quietly into that good night. He had no intention of that. Right. He had every intention of seizing the power of the presidency and consolidating that power. And some of, and, and a lot of this is and I and I blame Congress. I blame Congress over all these years. They have ceded so much power to the presidency yeah. that they are they are not doing their job at this point. Congress needs to pull back the power that it ceded to the president. You know, since since 9-11, a lot of power has been ceded to the presidency because Congress has just that Congress has not been able to govern in some time. Yeah. And it's in the hyper partisanship is to the point it's out of control, which is one of the reasons why I'm running. Look, I don't I don't want to sit and have ideological battles over radio and television. That's not my intent. You know, I, I'm, I'm not one of those people looking for that viral moment, so to speak. Um, it, it, it's not it's not about that. It's about our, our ability to govern. Yeah. It's about yeah. our ability to rally towards common cause. Yeah. When is when is the last time we, the United States of America and our citizens rallied to a common cause that wasn't a war? Oh, I don't know. I can think of the maybe this maybe the moonshot back in the 1960s, perhaps um, something like there that. There you go. Yeah. You see what I'm talking about? Yeah. We could not rally around fighting COVID. No, that was something that surprised that, something, me. That absolutely yeah, something surprised that, me. Something that needed to happen. We can't rally around fighting COVID. We can't rally around uh, taxing those who are going to feel taxes less so that we can fully fund our government and thereby all other programs get full, get properly funded. You know, we can we can argue the nuance of the taxation all we want to. But at the end of the day, we've got to be able to find a common cause to rally around that isn't just war. Yeah. If that's the only reason why we're if that's the only thing we can rally behind, that says a lot about us. We would rather yeah. fight than get along. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot of truth to that. And you talked about rallying behind COVID. Um, I'm, I'm abs- absolutely amazed at what happened in COVID 
where we came up with this vaccine. And I remember when when Donald Trump said, we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year. And I said, well, that's another lie, right? But he was actually, that time he was actually right. And the uh, the the amount of of scientific progress that was made there, it really was the moonshot of its day. And I am I am completely shocked that Americans don't take pride in that. And that was a real difficult thing to pull off to not exactly. only invent the vaccine, but to get that thing distributed out there. Um, it is the moonshot of its day, and you don't yep. hear anything about that these and, days. And you know, and you know what? And I and I applaud the efforts of the Trump administration on acting on COVID. But when, but you take out that action, and there was almost no other action by the Trump administration on COVID. Yeah, yeah. Well, there was. He resisted, it's actually undermining he, it. He, yeah. yeah, he resisted. He resisted everything else, distribution, all that stuff. He resisted everything else. And that is in, in one of the responsibilities of our lawmakers is to help make that rally cry. Yeah. And when, when it, everything is partisan, look, if it makes an administration look good, so be it. You know, at the end of the day, the administration has to get the, their credit where credit is due. Yeah. And they also need their blame where blame is due, yeah. period. Yeah. Um, it, it, this, this is <clears throat> governing should not be a partisan exercise. And that's, and unfortunately that's what we, that's what we're reduced to. Well, I guess you switch, uh, switch topics here a little bit now too, in terms of the democratic party itself, talking about governing. Um, can you see, or can you describe the issues that you see with with gaining acceptance of the party in the American heartland, in, in the American heartland. Cause I hear a lot about, you know, being a blue dot and a red state. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that, that people describe Missouri like that. And Democrats within Missouri are a blue dot within a red state. I think that exists mm-hmm. pretty, much, pretty much throughout the whole heartland. But yep. based on the people that I've spoken to, there seems to be a lot of blue dots in Missouri. And honestly, I don't see Missouri as being all that red. So it's not, what's your sense on that? Well, some of it is that the National Party does not invest in the state of Missouri because they look at what Cook's political report says about the state of Missouri, and they take what Cook's political report says about the state of Missouri, and it is the the gospel. Mm-hmm. We need to have a strategy of competing in 435 seats across the country, period. You have races, you know, you've got safe blue races you've got safe red races that's just all there is to it and they will pour the the national party will pour a crap ton of money trying to beat dan wagner Mm -hmm. they'll pour they'll pour in a whole lot of money trying to get trying to get uh missouri's second district seat they they will because cook's political report has it under 10 points yeah and they will ignore races where there are candidates who have worked hard like myself uh, because Cook's political report says it's R plus 10, R plus 20. And they, there's, there's almost, there's little to no assistance that comes. Now, as I said, we are in the process of, we are polling this district so that we know where we need to spend our resources. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we will, we will have, we know we'll have limited resources. We're not going to have that seven, that seven figure account where we can drop ads everywhere, uh, so we have to be very specific what, what, with what we do and where we do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's the, the Biden, Biden's run, he spent almost no money in Missouri. Yeah. And he still didn't get blown out in Missouri. So that should tell you where Missouri is. What if he had spent some money in Missouri? If you don't force Republicans to defend every seat where you have a candidate sitting, guess what? those candidates that are in those seats that you're not trying to compete, those candidates, the Republican candidates, then send their money to Ann Wagner. Yeah. Yeah. To, to help defend her seat. And so it, it basically becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. And that's the part that's hard about this is that because we don't invest, we end up with more of the same. And then they say, see, we told you, you couldn't win. Yeah. Yeah, but you told us we couldn't win, but you didn't give us any help. A self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. And 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 that's 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 the sad part. Now, look, I don't mind getting in a dog fight. I don't mind fighting fighting a tough fight. I don't. It's not 
it, it, it in some ways it builds character in other ways it does help get a message out and it helps galvanize people to come out. I mean, I had a robust primary because of it, because I was, because I, I was able to break through an 18 and uh, because I had a very strong message in 20, you know, I had a, had a robust primary, but if, if you take it, take it into consideration, we went from in 2018, we had uh, four candidates uh, in 2020, we had, uh, there were five of us, four of us, because one, one gal dropped out, mm -hmm. uh, and this year we there were three. Um, so when you do have a message and you have a very, very, uh, a weak incumbent that, or a perceived weak incumbent, incumbent, people come out to run, you know, and, and I don't think there would be the interest in this seat. If people, uh, if there wasn't, if there wasn't an attitude that he can be beaten, but the problem is in where in the ceiling that most camp campaigns hit is there's a limitation of how much message you can get out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's not like running for a state house seat where, you know, I over seven, eight, nine months could probably knock every single door for the state house seat. Mm -hmm myself and uh, uh, a community of volunteers could probably knock uh, if not every door, a good, good portion of the door by myself. Yeah. Um, but in a congressional seat in 39 counties in Northern Missouri, you know, my, my, my daughter was joke was uh, kind of joking with me yesterday, but uh, it turns out she was serious. It, it, it's actually a real thing. I bought, I had, to, I had to buy a new car about a month ago. Mm -hmm. And she said, dad, you've probably put 10,000 miles on this car already. And I looked down and I looked down at the odometer and I said, I'll be darned. We put over 10,000 miles on the yeah. car since we bought it in just a month. Yeah. But your and territory is huge though. I mean, uh, geographic yeah, wise. And that, yeah. And, and, and that's what, I'm, that's what I'm talking about. And yeah. so it is, it is, uh, physically and statistically impossible for me to reach every home that I need to reach, you know, by uh, me going door to door. Trish Gunby, I don't know if you know, she's the Democratic mm -hmm. that's running against Ann Wagner for the Second yes. District of Missouri. She's been at this for well over, uh, well, I'd say, well, maybe not well over a year. I met her last November, and she was already out there knocking on doors. And I've heard from several people that she's she's gone down just about every street in her district there to uh, to knock on the doors there. So. But but the geographic area here in the second district is uh, a lot it's smaller not, than the sixth district. So, that's right. It's know, a lot smaller. Yeah. And the neighbors are a lot closer They're together. A lot closer together, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes, while while yes, we can make that type of headway here in the Kansas City area. Mm -hmm. Uh but once we get outside of Kansas City, <laughs> it, it gets yeah. the neighbors. Neighbors are the a mile apart. Are, yeah, the yeah, the and the towns are sparse. They're yeah. sparsely populated. Listen, I, I know that in the in the sixth district there are people who would more than happily vote Democrat. I do I do realize that. Mm -hmm. I do realize that there are some who are of the belief that every Democrat is whatever Fox paints us to be today or mm -hmm. tomorrow and the next day. But I as as my commercial says, I do believe that public service is a commitment. It is a commitment to our constitution and the people it serves and protects. Yeah. Period. That is that is at that is at the core of what I believe. And um I I don't think I think every person deserves um the best representation possible. Yeah. And they deserve a representative who can set aside their personal beliefs in order to govern for every person in yeah. the district. Because if we're only governing for my personal beliefs, if, if that's how I make all my decisions on the floor of the house, then there's a lot of people that are left out because my personal position is just that it's mine. Yeah. And yeah. there's, there's 300,000 people that have to be represented yeah. in this district. It's a lot of people, and it's, yeah. and it's not, it's not fair to those who don't share my exact view that I get to make the decisions for them. I believe that being elected to office means that you have to consider every position. Yeah. And sometimes 
you're going to have to throw out things that some people that agree with you are going to love so that you can craft legislation that everybody can get down with and say, you know what, this, I don't like all of it, but this can work mm-hmm. because it's, it's about allowing people to govern themselves. We pass legislation to allow self-governance. We don't pass legislation to rule the masses. Right. That's a, that's and a very so, good point. I like that. I'm going to quote that one too. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that, that's important, Yeah. you know, um, so. Well, I did, we're, we're kind of coming up on the end of our time right now. So one, I did want to ask you about one question here, which has been, which has been brewing now. I think we're at the six month mark for the war in Ukraine. And there's just a lot of grumbling, particularly on the right. Uh, some people on the left, but mostly on the right are regarding our continued support for Ukraine President Biden has just signed a, uh, I guess you would call it a decree, to send over another $775 million in military aid to Ukraine. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, first of all, do you support this effort? And, and secondly, what's the end game here? When do we throw in the towel or when, is, when is this, what, what's, what does the end look like to you? <laughs> you know, that is a very tough, tough question. Um, but here's in the, my position on it is this. If we, the United States of America, are the defenders of democracy that we claim to be, Ukraine is the perfect place for us to assist. We, if, if we can do it without putting a single one of our, our military personnel on the ground, then we should do it. Because helping to defend their democracy is paramount to some stability in Europe. Unfortunately, unfortunately, Putin has every intention of trying to overthrow Ukraine just because he feels like he needs to. And he wants to and he wants to show the might of the Rus- the Russian army. Um, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm afraid I, I wanted to play devil's advocate right there because you said a couple mm-hmm. things there. And I don't mean to interrupt, but, uh, you know, I, okay. I, I agree that we are to some degree protectors of democracy. But isn't that the type of mindset that got us involved in Vietnam as well? Make America safe uh, for democracy. Well, uh, actually, I think we were honoring a treaty with France that got us into Vietnam. I think that's what I think that's what that was. This is not a this is not a treaty. We do not have a single American troop committed to this war. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are just providing the aid to help the Ukrainians uh, defend their country. Mm-hmm. It is, I mean, it is, a, it is insp- inspirational to see that the Ukrainians have been able to fight back the Russians. As more and more information comes out, it would appear that the Biden administration was trying to warn the Ukrainians and Europe that an invasion was coming mm-hmm. for months before Putin came across. Yeah. And no one did anything. And so that is a sad point that the that um, President Biden and his administration had already uh, told them that this was happening but they still did nothing. And so that's unsettling, but here we're here now. And as long as the Ukrainians have the fight, we should continue to offer them military aid in the form of uh, if, we, if we have arms or anything that we can give them to help them. Um, I think that defending that democracy, uh, if that democracy falls, who, who's the next one? So if we give up, uh, Putin decides that he, and, and apparently this is part of his effort to reconstitute the old Soviet Union. Well, uh, I'm so gonna, where does he go next? I'm going to play devil's advocate again, and I'm, I'm, and keep in mind, I'm no, I'm no fan of Putin at all. But, mm-hmm. but Russia as a nation has been a, has been attacked, you know, three major times over the last 150 years, and they the, they have a problem that the United States doesn't have. We have two oceans to protect us here that acts as a barrier between any mm-hmm. our potential enemies. Russia doesn't have that. And so, you know, it was, you know, who was the first Napoleon? And then it was uh, mm-hmm. the Kaiser and then it was uh, World War II. 
um, they have a philosophy, they gained a philosophy through all those experiences in building up buffer nations and building up um, uh, influence in the countries surrounding them, if not taking them over, but surrounding them. Mm -hmm. Now, with all that in mind, and I'm sure you're familiar with the history about that, what about NATO, though? Because doesn't, doesn't NATO sort of push the limit in a way because NATO was, was formed in the aftermath of World War II to, mm-hmm. uh, as, a, as a counterbalance to the Warsaw Pact and the counterbalance to the Soviet Union. But when the Soviet Union fell in the 1990s, there was talk at the time, and I remember this, about uh, having NATO, uh, having potentially Russia as part of NATO at one point. That mm-hmm. fell through very quickly. But um, mm-hmm. there were guarantees that were handed out to Russia at that point, saying that NATO would not expand into any of these countries that surround Russia. And, mm-hmm. and that, well, starting with Clinton and, and continuing on through Bush and so on, that has just fallen away. So in a sense, Russia, and, and put Putin aside for a moment, but just Russia itself has to be feeling some of this heat coming closer and closer to them, um, so in a sense, I understand the mentality of what they're doing. I don't agree with it. I think there's other ways of, of solving this problem, but, um, mm-hmm. but here we are. And so do you support, uh, the, the continuance of NATO or do you think we should, uh, abolish it and, and start, uh, bringing up, you know, perhaps, uh, writing, uh, contra or not contracts, but treaties with other countries, uh, as an informal sort of NATO, but not an actual NATO. I actually have no problem with the continuance of NATO. And actually, that is actually a great idea to allow Russian uh, membership into NATO. Um, But Russia is going to have to, I mean, Russia will have to change the way it does a lot of things Mm -hmm. um, inside its government. Um, But uh, because a diplomatic solution is a whole lot cheaper than a war. Yeah. Well, none of us and nobody can continue because with war, all you get is destruction. And the only people that get rich are the people that, that are, that are fun, that are uh, making the weapons. That's yeah. it. Yeah. That's it. Well, that, that's so what I'm afraid I, of with NATO though. Because... I would rather, I would rather spend, I would rather spend a million dollars on diplomacy to prevent wars from happening mm-hmm. than $500 million to win a war. Yeah. Um, and, and that, because you, you spend, you spend that $1 million and it may, it makes a huge difference. And I think there, there are ways to get this to end, but, uh, it, it seems like, uh, the world always needs a big bad because I think we're always sold that there's always somebody that's trying to hurt us or take our stuff. Um, and, and I just, and that messaging is so old for me. Um, I think I think a lot of Americans are tired of hearing that same old rhetoric. There's somebody else coming for our stuff. There's somebody else coming for your stuff. There's somebody else that's coming to take what you've got. And I think I think the I think a lot of the people a lot of people are just tired of constantly being uh, on watch for the next enemy. Um, the world is not our enemy. Islam is not our enemy. Are there people who are extremists? Yes, we. There are extremists around the world. We've got extremists here at home that we can't, that we're not even dealing with. Um, our our homegrown extremists. We can't even get a law passed that that uh, addresses our um, our homegrown uh, terrorism that happens here. So that says a lot about us. We can rally against somebody else's. Uh, terror terrorists, but we can't rally against our own. No, and it's 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 time. It is time for us to start prioritizing and start really being serious about these things. Having these real serious discussions about how we go forward, because if we're just if we're just going to keep just throwing poop at the wall to see what sticks then we're just going to have poop on our walls and it's going to stink in the room after a little while. Yeah. Um, what is, what is the bad thing? I mean, aside from Putin's behavior, uh, aside from his behavior, what is it that we don't want or that, that is a turnoff about Russia? 
That's a question. Yeah. You take Putin, you take Putin's behavior off the table. You put somebody else in power in Russia, an, a new Russian president that is there working for the, in the interests of the Russian people, which is you know something they just haven't had in in Putin because he's been making himself and the rest of his oligarchs rich. Right. You 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 remove him from power and you put uh, one of his adversaries in power. What's wrong with Russia being part of NATO? Well, I, I guess one of the one of the asterisks asterisks that you have when you join NATO, and this is just me talking here, but from my my understanding is one of the one of the obligations you make when you join NATO is that you have to devote two percent of your GDP toward uh, paying for the military. military. And so paying for their military, yeah. Right. And so what happens is a lot of people, as you say, a lot of people get rich, right? Because they sell all the mm. weapons and everything that has to stop because what happens mm. is the whole world gets stockpiled with weapons. Yep. Uh, and this is, and, and this you, is, if you look at it from Russia's perspective, that's what they're seeing when they look out over their border, they're mm. seeing everybody putting all kinds of, putting 2% of their GDP, buying all kinds of weapons. I mean, I would feel threatened if I were them. Uh, again, I'm not excusing their behavior, but, but, uh, you gotta, you gotta figure that, you know, you're poking a stick at the hornet's nest here. You, uh, if you get stung a few times, that's what's going to happen. And uh, like I said, I, I get it. I understand that. I understand Putin's paranoia. And Putin is still living in the, the Soviet era. But we are now post-Soviet era. And there, has been, there have been no acts of aggression against Russia since the fall of the Soviet Union. Zero. And um, NATO, uh, NATO existed for 20 years following the fall of the Soviet Union, and there's, there's still no act of aggression against, against Russia. And I think, I think uh, Russia needs to be brought into the fold, but we need to find a way to do it uh, that saves face for everybody. Uh, because I'm, I'm tired of, uh, you know, just like every other American, I am tired of the nonstop wars. I, I get it. I get it that we need to go and we need to take care of terrorists. We need to take care of every terrorist, wherever they lie, domestic and foreign, uh, because those people are trying to disrupt the peace that the rest of the rest of us in the world have. You know, we, we've evolved into a global economy. And as a participant in the global economy, you know, we we want to maximize the American dollars that can be made in the global economy. I, I'm um, I'm totally in your camp on that one. In fact, today, uh, Randy McCallion, who's running for the eighth uh, district, had a comment on her uh, Twitter feed talking about um, having um, silicon manufacturers, uh, mm -hmm. computer chip manufacturers located in Missouri. I gave her an enthusiastic thumbs up. Yes, we can do that. We yep. have the talent. We have the ability. We have the we have the real estate. So, mm -hmm. I mean, why not? Why not do that? But you know, we do have to wrap this up here. We're kind of going on a marathon session. I think this is the longest mm -hmm. podcast we've ever done. <laughs> but but I, I I could go for another hour. I tell you. But we do have yep. to wrap this up. Uh, just a final question for you is: uh, Where can people go to support your efforts on the path to uh, U.S. Congress? Always go to my website at henrymartinforcongress.com. Uh, we do try. I do try and keep educational material there uh, for people that they can read uh, the things that are really important. Let's talk, let's talk governance. And when we're talking governance, we're talking about the things that are going to move this country forward. I, I'm not. I mean, I can talk about culture war issues if that's what you really want to do, but I'm trying to focus on what it means to govern. Okay. Um, so, and th those are things that that are being talked about on uh, Facebook. Or on my webpage okay. uh, and on and on Facebook, uh, so I do do try and keep that education piece out there. Okay. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at HM for Congress. Uh, my Facebook page is also Henry Martin for Congress. Um, okay. So the biggest thing that people can do at this point is donate, uh, because as I said, uh, getting to everybody is it's going to be expensive to get into the media market and to send people direct mailers. All those things cost. And over time, I'd like to be able to uh, do more of that so that people can actually see the campaign and what we're doing. Okay. And that's Henry Martin for Congress. That's F-O-R. So HenryMartinForCongress.com. All one word, no hyphens, no underscores. Yep. Okay, good. 
We've been talking with Henry Martin, Democratic candidate for U.S. Congress, District 6 in Missouri. Henry, thank you for joining us again on Democracy on the Move, and I wish you good luck and lots of success in your campaign for the U.S. Congress. Thank you very much, Dan. I appreciate your time. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its true principles of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. <laughs>